is financial crime? Banks doing enough to expose it? And how is technology changing the battleground? In this episode of Inside Track, I'll unpack these questions and more with my good friend Nick Swingler, Group Head of Financial Crime from ABSA, one of the biggest banks in Africa. The sponsor for this episode was Cybrin, who are probably most known for their payment and information management technology solutions. I hope you enjoy. So I'm just going to um, jump straight in and actually do it a bit oddly compared to how other people run these things. We'll do an intro for you, but I don't want to start with that. I want to start with a, a bigger question, not who is Nick Swingler. What is financial crime? Because I need to frame that for the next question, which is going to become clear why in a minute. I guess I have to uh, frame it properly for you. Um, I think in the in the general sense, Colin, so financial crime is when a crime has been committed and that could be any predicate offence. So it could be bribery, corruption. Um, it could be the proceeds of, of illegal activity. And then using the financial system to basically move, keep, launder, etc., the proceeds of crime. So crimes are committed. There are many of them that are committed. Um, when the proceeds of crime flows through or enters the financial um, services industry, that's when we need to, or with this an expectation that we would be able to pick that up, track that, report that, and that us, as a firm, we will take whatever measures we can to mitigate our risk and exposure to those type of activities. Okay, so basically, you know, in, in simplified terms, it could be anything. You know, as long as there's crime, which could be anything, and there's a financial aspect to it, whether it's the crime itself or moving the uh, benefits that they've received from the crime, it's going to touch the financial crime unit in ABSA and all the other banks, not just ABSA, obviously, yeah? Correct, yep. So my second question is, why on earth would you want to go and become the head of financial crime for any organisation? Because it feels like you've got this much risk to try to manage across thousands, hundreds of thousands you know, of people around the world who are committing crimes, and it's almost feels as a starting point it's it's virtually impossible to capture all these people you're heading towards a situation where at some point someone's going to turn around and said the financial crime unit have not done what they should be doing why on earth did you get into this that it, it is a good question and i'm, I'm not crazy I, I, the, the reason why i got in is because yes there's a lot of downside risk here we would never be uh, claiming that we can reduce the risk to zero for the firm we can never deliver something that will say that crime will never enter into the firm or we'll catch it so we have to basically do the things that we can do to optimize the impact we can have either, either in detecting, uh, reporting, or disrupting this activity. Um, why I entered into it personally is that I enjoy the concept of a risk discipline. So this is a live 24-7. This happens every day around us. It changes regularly, so we have to stay up to speed with that. And then also the aspects of risk management in, in this specific discipline requires um, the deployment of a lot of technology and tools and techniques, the uses of data, et cetera, to actually provide the risk management tool. So although our function sits in compliance, it is not about complying to a set of rules and regulations as the objective. It's actually by looking at how we can understand, quantify, and mitigate the risks that we're facing in the firm and mitigate them to a level that's acceptable, but doing it in a way that we will comply. Um, so that for me was the, the move away from the old style tick 10 boxes and we're done because we comply with the act. Um, that's a guaranteed recipe for failure in terms of our risk that we're taking in the firm. So the, the, the transformation of that into something that is a real risk management capability. And yes, risk comes with judgmental 
um, conclusions or subjectivity. And we do make mistakes, but we learn from that. And in the world of risk, the, there's no real nirvana or perfection. It's a it's a messy business, and we need to to get through that as best we can. So those are the things that, that personally um, appeal to me. Yes, we still get many questions about why did you not see this or why did you not pick up this? Uh, five years later, someone has the the benefit of hindsight, and it looks so obvious. But five years ago, we might not have looked that obvious to us. So yes, it is a you have to have a thick skin and, and, and be able to, to move fast in this business. Okay, so huge scale in terms of the size of the problem that you're trying to go and resolve. Uh, you're telling us you're not crazy for moving into this. It's actually um, an interesting area, especially as it's moved from kind of ticky box exercises to a risk-based approach. We want to go into that in a bit in terms of where that's taking the future of uh, managing financial crime and preventing financial crime. What did you do before you went into it? Just the last part of the backdrop, because I think that's also important that um, the experiences that you had prior to that, I think were really good grounds for you to actually get the appreciation of financial crime before moving into it, because it touched many of the roles you had beforehand. Yeah, correct. So, so I was the chief operating officer for the corporate investment bank, and that did actually expose me to the technology that we had in that system and in that business, the, the, the type of transactions, the business, it, it exposed me to the aspects of data. Um, so, so there was a lot of operational and, te- and technology experience, a lot of product understanding. Those things are a lot more beneficial and critical to succeeding in this space than having a degree in law, for example. The, the other bit that I'm, well, I'm saying I'm not crazy, but this never was part of my career planning. So it came as, as quite a, a surprise when I was approached to, to see if I wanted to do this, this job. But as we got into the discussion, the things that appealed to me were exactly those ones that I could actually leverage off my technology operational product experience as the chief operating officer for the corporate investment bank, and then basically apply that um, or those principles and apply those skills to rebuild a function that is very different to, to what it was five years ago. So can you give people an idea about just how much you actually have to cover? I think a simple way to introduce it is just going through some of the acronyms. Um, that exists. You know, we've got ABC, KYC, EDD, um, overseen and reporting into the, uh, you know, the FICA uh, with AML and we've got PIP and PEP and STR. And I'm probably missing out on a, on a huge number. So I don't mean go into every single one of those, but can you give people an idea about just how expansive it is across the bank in terms of trying to deal with financial crime? It touches every single person, basically. You're correct. Absolutely. And the there are many acronyms, and, and they actually are, um, they, they sometimes baffle me as well. But um, the, the, the expanse of this is basically across all our locations, all our products, all our customers. So um, every transaction that comes through the bank um, needs to be understood and looked at on many angles, in, in, from a behavioral point of view, from an actual transaction point of view. So, yes, it is very expansive in that sense. And then also, if you look at the expectation of the supervisors and the regulators, um, there are numerous acts and requirements that we have to meet. As you um, you said, we've got suspicious transaction reporting. We've got the Financial Intelligence Center Act in South Africa. We've got the equivalent of that in all the other jurisdictions that we operate within. So then if you layer on top of that, we have basically our executive committee and our board where the appetite for certain risks are not there or where the appetite for certain levels of risk are just basically much lower. Um, so there's a there's a big angle of, reputational risk linked to financial crime risk appetite as well. So you've got those three aspects playing in in terms of I need to comply with a lot of 
requirements and legislation I need to comply with ensuring that we deliver the appropriate risk appetite and residual risk uh, for the firm. And then we have to cover everything that we do within the firm. So those three axes probably work in. But um, the way to do that is to unpack them, understand the threats and the risk in the first instance. And then we will build that in a way that we that we meet the expectations of both our exco and our board and um, our regulators and supervisors. All right. So if we think back as a starting point, just a, a couple of years ago, perhaps, and in many ways, um, perhaps it's still you know, prevalent in a, in a lot of organizations. I've always seen the risk management framework being rather procedural, rather ticky box, you know. So if you take KYC as an example, um, there's lots of questions and, and thoughts you could look at it, but actually it's rather formulaic. If he falls into this category, then you have to do this. If it's that category, we have to review it, you know, in 12 months time. If it's coming from this jurisdiction, it's on this list for sanctions, then we just don't touch that entity or that particular person. Can you give us a sense of how that's changing? Because you keep talking about this risk-based approach and everything I ever saw was extremely procedural, very black and white and binary in the approach to go and deal with it. You're honest and correct. It's probably one of the biggest challenges. You can change everything to a risk-based approach, but what happens in a, in a large firm is that when you execute and operate, the people want to know, what should I do? And the more you get into the detail, the more it is, show me the 10 steps before I onboard a customer, What, which pieces of paper or which data points do I have to collect? The person then runs a process and executes. Um, that's a natural kind of tendency of, of, of how these things are run. The, the, the challenge there is to, to, to get people to understand what they are doing. A, a very good example would be companies, for example, are coming to South African banks and asking them for foreign currency accounts, but um, the, the companies are not based in South Africa um, and they haven't got any business here. So, and they will have reasons as to why they, they, they try and explain why they should be banked here. But from an onboarding point of view, if, if, if that team is collecting the company reg number, the address, the, the, the directors, the whatever, you screen and test all of those things and it's all fine. No one's asking the question as to what business does this company have in South Africa and why should we therefore bank them in South Africa? So that ability to understand what we're doing versus trying to break things up into a process is a real challenge. So what we do is um, we start off with the risks and the threats and then we try and put in place approaches and standards in terms of how to do that, but not trying to dictate that it's this or this or that. So if I have to identify a client, we have to identify the client. Now, I can do that through a identity card, or I can do that through a fingerprint that I send to the home affairs and, and get confirmation. But there are options of doing that as opposed to you must only do one, two, three, four, five. But it's an ongoing battle, Colin. I, I, I can't say that um, that the whole firm is now flicked from a process driven to a, to a risk management. And also in certain areas where you do detailed execution, you want people to follow a certain level of quality. So there is some form of process, but it's, it's ensuring that it's not driven to the point where we forget about what are we doing, what are the real questions around the risk, et cetera, that we have to ask. Yeah, I mean, how much progress you make? And I always think that a lot of the questions that were coming through uh, didn't make much sense to me. I mean, one of the ones just practically that everyone on the call will be used to is when they've been KYC'd and they're asked questions, you know, can you prove your uh, home address, your residential address? 
I never fully understand what the point of that from a risk management perspective is. But um, is it useful or is it just one of those legacy form based approaches which you just have to comply? That's a very good example. Um, that, that one actually stemmed from the, the, the previous act that the Financial Intelligence Center had out there, um, where the act was quite prescriptive and it said you will collect a ID document, a proof of address, and a, and a whatever. So that, when, when the FIG Act was changed and amended, uh, probably about effective maybe about three years ago, um, that requirement has been removed because it is a very prescriptive requirement. So the banks now don't have to collect proof of address, and many many of the banks don't do that anymore because we couldn't understand the link between Colin's risk if he lives in Johannesburg versus Nick's risk if he lives in um, Bloom or Durban or wherever it may be. So yes, there there may be some aspects of client service you would you would. Um, want to, um, to, to derive off the location. And there could be some aspects of, of crime hotspots that happen in certain areas, but because Connor lives in Joburg doesn't mean he's a criminal and, and we can't bring the, the two together. So address actually isn't a, a prerequisite for onboarding a large portion of the customers where it may come in as if you're a politically exposed person and um, the address is helpful to understand where the person is based, understand associates and uh, close connections and relatives and stuff. but. Um, that is a very good example of something that in the prescriptive world was there and had to be done, but now we have the option not to do it. And we have, um, and so have uh, many of the other banks moved away from that being a, a, a requirement for onboarding. That bodes well that you're getting support for making these changes. And what's the psychology here? I always found that if there is something in place as a procedure in a large organization, it is incredibly hard to get people to buy and to remove that procedure or that particular control. Were, the natural tendency is to say, you know, it must be there for a reason. I can't think of it, but someone thought about this before me. Therefore, we're going to keep it. So as you're going to this risk-based approach and stopping some of these more procedural control-based, are you finding it difficult to get the organization to go with you? Oh, massively. And I think it's a it's an ongoing battle that, that every organization, especially the larger ones, will fight for the foreseeable future and probably for a long time after that. There are many examples when we were sort of looking, for example, at our business banking um, customer base. Um, there were probably 50 prescriptive fields that had to be collected and it, it made the customer experience quite horrible. When we went through why that is being done, many of the comments coming back, yeah, but this is all for audit point from five years ago or I don't know, but we just do it in this way. So, so that the set of data fields that were required we reduced that by probably 70% in terms of none of them are financial crime requirements. Um, you somehow have built things into your system that that has just lived over time to your point that the next person who takes on the job just does it because the previous person did it. So it's, it's, it's that battle of, of pushing hard to say, why are you doing it? Um, and we, we don't have a problem driving for that because uh, ultimately the, the, the sweet spot is being able to get the things we need to manage the customer in terms of the risk they pose, but also to service the customer and lastly to provide a customer experience that is acceptable or enjoyable, uh, maybe as an aspiration for the customer. So we have to get that right. And it's not just a, a financial crime request. It's actually a combination of those together. But yes, it's, a, it's an ongoing battle to root out those procedures and processes that don't add any value, but have found a way to live just over the years of them being around. Are we actually seeing much financial crime in South Africa or, or across Africa? Because if I was using 
for example, the amount of fines that are being pushed out globally as a benchmark. Um, there's very few that seem to have been pushed out to the financial sector in South Africa. But, you know, we think Goldman Sachs, uh, five billion for their one uh, MDB, you know, saga. Wells Fargo, three billion. JP Morgan, one billion. Westpac, one billion. City, you, you can just basically say any fine now, uh, particularly for the US banks, if it's not a billion or more, the regulator isn't doing their, their job. But we've not seen those types of uh, pressures from the regulator, or at least I haven't seen that type of pressure from the regulators in, in South Africa. Is that because we don't have a huge amount of financial crime? Uh, no, it's not. So, so you're right in terms of we haven't seen across the continent the the magnitude of fines that have been issued, especially by, by the US and then followed probably by, by the UK and Europe. But it doesn't mean that, that there isn't financial crime. So we absolutely have significant amounts of financial crime across the continent. In South Africa, um, we can talk about the recent aspects of state capture. We can talk about uh, whether it's wildlife trafficking or cigarette smuggling. There, 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 are, there, are many, there are many crimes being committed which find their way into the financial services industry. The reason why the fines aren't there could be because the banks have discharged their obligation. So, um, and, and that will be picking it up and reporting that. And the reason why you may not see that in the public eye is because those reports are consumed by the authorities and the public sector institutions, law enforcement, etc., to then act upon. We aren't seeing significant action, and, and, and that's the, the conclusion of a recent FATF mutual evaluation that was finalized probably two months ago in South Africa, where we do have deficiencies in our end-to-end -end chain of fighting um, financial crime. Um, having said that, I can't claim that the banks are perfect. I mean, I, I, I sit in this spot for one of the large banks. Um, we always are looking to improve and, and we always have to change and do things better. The key things for that I would watch out for is, do I pass the reasonable person test in terms of, did I apply my mind? Did I do what can be expected of me? Um, those are the, the, I think, the benchmarks for being fined. I think some of the fines that, that were dished out in respect of activity in South America, for example, there were some explicit um, circumvention of rules, etc., by some of the banks that, that were fined. We haven't seen that in South Africa, but the, there is a, a valid question mark around are the banks as effective as they can be? And it's for each of us to, to basically become better and make sure that we are as effective as we should be. Um, maybe the last point on that is in the absence of anything being done, the bank is sitting with the risk. So I can see that Colonel's is a is definitely a problem for us and he continues to behave inappropriately. I have reported Colonel's uh, many times through a suspicious transaction report. This is not real, Colin. This is just I, was just, I was just sitting there thinking this feels very realistic. <laughs> I'm just going, oh, damn, they've caught me. But um, having said that, nothing happens um, in terms of any action against Colin. At the end of the day, as a bank, we're going to have to make a decision. Is the reputational risk for the bank of continuing with Colin more significant or larger than exiting Colin? And then at that point you may find that the banks will choose to exit risk that they can't mitigate or reduce, or there's no action around um, the, the activity they see. Uh, and that's where you see bank exits as a kind of like a, a not, not a last step, but we, we, we have to mitigate the risk. And that is one of the mitigants that, that are available. That's quite interesting because you go from a form-based approach to risk-based approach, and now you end up in a very a very human sort of discussion. It's a very emotional discussion where the facts kind of start to fall away and it becomes, and you know, I'll just use an example. Let's talk about politically exposed people. 
So there's an onboarding process. They're a significant player. You'd love to have their account. They have multiple business interests, which if you look after them both personally, you're hoping to pick up the business and the corporate side of uh, pieces that they're doing. They are politically exposed. You do want that account. You're now running it through the structures to assess what reputational risk you could be taking. That must be really hard to keep the balance because often when you get to those senior levels of leadership in the banks, they are working in the politically exposed realms themselves. They know those people and actually sometimes they are politically exposed just as the individuals who are monitoring what's happening. So how do you sort of deal with these to try to make sure that you get the the correct argument and emotions in the discussions for what is a very grey discussion? Yeah, and the, the, what we do in the best way to, to go after it is to do as much as you can. We call it enhanced due diligence. So uh, gather as much data points and facts on the person or the entity or whatever you're looking at so that you, you are best able to understand the risk and also you have some way of quantifying that. Um, you're trying to move away from an emotional discussion. I mean, if you talk about a politically exposed person, we have a, an approach to them in terms of risk identification, quantification, acceptance of that risk. Um, there's nothing wrong with banking a politically exposed person. There's a problem if that person starts to misbehave, but that's the same problem as banking colonels. So there's nothing wrong in banking you, but if you start to misbehave, then I should be able to pick that up and your risk profile has then significantly changed. If I have a politically exposed person that wants to onboard with me and they already are misbehaving based upon the data points I am collecting, then the risk that they pose to the firm will already be significantly elevated. And those are decisions that have to be made. But with assessing risk, I think the best way is to not leave it to an emotive decision or a judgmental decision only, but doing the enhanced due diligence, collating as much as possible to understand what it is, and then make a, a better informed decision. Oh, Greg, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear loud and clear. So UBO is Ultimate Beneficial Ownership. I'm excited about this one. The Panama Papers. Shoot, you're on. Yeah, I actually made a slight typo there. I meant to say uh, with the release of the Paradise Papers recently and then the Panama Papers before and obviously all the other dumps of information on hidden corporate entities, hidden money, it seems there really is a lot of inner, inner energy around the concept of, of resolving ultimate beneficial owner. Uh, you, I'm sure you're more than aware that FinCEN has, has earmarked about half a billion dollars to creating a system to help that with that in the U.S. because they were pretty embarrassed by the stuff in the in the last drop of information. So what I'm curious about is is, is a couple of, of, of things. Do you, do you see the SA government helping to make access to like trust information easier? Because trust information is very difficult to get. It's not timely at all. It's pretty opaque. As well as like shareholdership on corporations. I mean, we can find out who the directors are pretty easily and stuff like that. These are all kind of put together. And then um, in, in relationship to the UBO side of things, do you see all of this changing regulation in the, in the area or the region? And then finally, how does all that, do, how do you think it's going to impact your practices and procedures related to that? So, yeah, sorry. Sorry, it was fairly complicated. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Those are all, all very good questions. So, um, and, and maybe a bit of background when I talk about the legislation what we find in, in Africa and, and SA specifically, the large banks that have footprints outside of the, the base country and are linked into the international financial community, uh, we have to 
provide a level of control and governance and therefore a risk profile to our international providers that are acceptable. So uh, we were part of Barclays in the past that so we were operating as a or at the same level that an international bank would be operating at. Um, since the sell down of Barclays, uh, we spent a lot of time with, for example, our dollar clearers, our hard currency clearing banks to take them through what we do and how we actually meet the expectations of the international uh, financial industry and not just the local reg requirements. Um, absolutely in the US, um, the, the, the drive is there. We've been unpacking UBO with our clearing banks for a long time to, um, to take them through how we go about doing that, the levels we go down to. It is now in the new actor requirement that all banks have to do ultimate beneficial ownership um, analysis up to the warm body. So the concept is there and that, that concept is good. Um, like I said, we've been doing it probably for the last 10 years. Um, we really have struggled by being initially the only bank out there asking companies all these questions and trusts where the beneficiaries don't want to know or us to know who they are. But you, you just can't bank companies or, or entities if you don't understand that. So that's the, the first point. The second one is the FATF mutual evaluation report that's come out um, that I referred to earlier has been quite explicit that um, the country is lacking in its uh, its recording of beneficial ownership um, and it needs to implement some form of a register. We're delighted as a bank for, for that because we've been driving for that for quite a while. The register doesn't solve everything for us and we still have to go through the work and, and unpack it, but it provides a credible, timely source of information that we can tap into to understand um, shareholding all through up until we get to the, the actual warm body. So uh, that is one of the key um, uh, recommendations and needs to be, uh, let's say, significantly advanced, if not kind of live by um, 18 months from now. So we already had some discussions with the, the regulator around that as a banking industry, and we have committed that we will, we will continue to, to help and drive that with them. So I would expect some form of register to, to be um, in place. Uh, the, the trust is very interesting because um, we don't share or we don't retain our information in South Africa uh, in the same registry. So you've got a, a company registry, but the trustees are all um, in the master's office in the, in, the, in the different courts. So, And that was a discussion we had at the Financial Crime Symposium about two weeks ago in if you want that, someone has to go two levels in the basement, get some file, get some document. It, it is, it's a real problem. So uh, there's also a commitment to see how best to store those records um, for consumption by the appropriate um, institutions, etc. going forward. So I would hope that as a country, we are significantly advanced in this uh, within the next 12 to 18 months. It is a requirement for all the banks to do appropriate um, beneficial ownership analysis. It is critical for us to be able to, to rely on a credible source. So hopefully the register will be um, something that, that, that we can get pretty soon. Thanks, Nick. I want to take a slight pivot. Well, that's not totally because you sort of mentioned it again as a theme. You are spending a lot of time in terms of UBO trying to implement processes where you're looking for that warm body. You know, quite progressive in that area as opposed to some of the procedures that other organizations have been doing and it, it makes absolute sense. Do you get the feeling sometimes that you are burdened 
by the level of regulatory control that you're trying to put in place compared to some of the uh, fintechs particularly that are out there this is something that Jamie Dimon you know said was it last year and, and actually had it written in their um, JP Morgan's annual results they have a uncompetitive they have a competitive disadvantage compared to the fintechs because of the regulatory burden that they're having to try to apply and also their own internal risk perceptions about what they're trying to do because any fintech can come along basically set up an online uh, onboarding process and wham bam there you go you've got your account it happened in 5 minutes but he's implying they've got very few controls in place do you do you believe that's a little bit true not in respect of UBO, but, but it absolutely is. And I think that the, the playing field isn't level, um, which always creates a problem. And the problem it creates for, for ourselves is that those fintechs or whichever um, peripheral players that they are, they want to also access the, um, the banking system, but they're doing it in a way that they haven't got a banking license. So they don't have to comply with the, the requirements that, that we have. So there's a point where the, the two don't connect nicely. If, if you give something to me that's of equivalent quality, then I can plug it in and we can play and we're all at the same at the same level. But if we're plugging in something that is of a significantly, uh, it's called inferior quality, it, it, it becomes a real challenge for us. And it's not that the banks don't want to play in that space. It's not that the banks don't want to provide services. It's more a question of how fast can the regulation catch up to ensure and, and this is a, a concept that is um, is also used in that Wolfsburg Forum and discussions amongst the, the larger banks is same risk, same rules. If that principle can apply, then I think everyone can play because if you are posing in whichever business you are, if you're a fintech, if you're a crypto virtual, virtual asset provider, etc., if it's the same risks, it should abide by the same rules. What we are finding is the rules are well established and defined for the risk in for that specific risk in the banking industry, but that same risk that operates elsewhere, the rules aren't defined for it. So it, it, it's a, how quickly can we get the same risk, same rules principle from a regulation and from a supervision point of view to be to be applied. But I absolutely agree that there is a disadvantage. Um, it doesn't mean that everything we do and the regulations we have are inappropriate. But a lot of that's actually very appropriate. And it provides the appropriate risk mitigants to make sure that we don't actually um, become a systemic problem for the country or that um, we have an issue in terms of customers, etc. But the same rules should then apply to the, the players who pose the same risk. And we don't see that yet. And it's not definitely not as fast as, um, as, as we would like to, to see that. Yeah, I get the feeling it's really difficult, though, because all those different sectors have got different regulators. So if yeah. I'm the JSC, if I'm a telco, if I'm an insurance provider, if I'm a bank, if I'm a fintech, not even using, uh, not without, you know, not using a banking license, I'm underwritten by a particular bank. It feels like there's a long way to go to go and get multiple different regulators to actually come together to go and get this same risk, same approach model in place. Correct. And I think that also what's happening with some of those companies that don't fall into the space of only a single regulator, but at the moment they are still um, regulated by a single regulator. So if you look at the, the telcos, many of them um, want to be banks, but okay, that's, that's quite a different approach to, to apply for a banking license. But if you remain as a telco under your telco regulation, but you are doing things that look like a bank, those, those are the aspects that we, when, when do you flick over and when should you then start to say, okay, well, the, the things I'm doing 
just on plain voice and data on a on a mobile device. They are actually peripheral services which are looking like and have the risks of something that is more banking or whatever it may be that the services that those guys offer. When um, we look at the criminals and think back to what you said earlier, I mean, state capture has obviously been a massive thing in South Africa. Without question, a lot of that money has been going through the South African banking system. And I'm sure there's lots of analysis on that now. What's your assessment of, of um, how that was able to happen, you know, at the different points on the process, whether it's onboarding the companies, you know, lending to those specific companies, going and dealing with the specific transactions that they're passing through, often cross-border um, to their uh, their colleagues, let's call them colleagues, you know, but that's, we're talking really billions of rand that they've managed to manoeuvre through the financial system. What, what's your take on how this has occurred and what needs to change, if anything? Uh, it, it's, it's, again, a very good question. So I, I can't speak for, for the industry, but definitely our bank, and, and if you look at some of the stuff we're doing across the Banking Association, the banks have fulfilled a role in terms of reporting um, suspicious activity. Uh, there are thousands of reports that, that, that get submitted. How they were then disseminated and acted upon is a, is a, is a different question. Um, we had through the FATF evaluation and um, through the Zondo Commission quite a few questions asked across the end-to-end. -end. So with all of this, why did nothing else happen? Um, we, we can't deny the fact that there was a lot of maybe we could capture of other institutions as well, which stopped the, 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 the pursuit or the flow of things in terms of it getting to a conclusion, some conviction, some, some aspects of, of closure on that. So um, definitely that, that is, a, is, a, is an issue because if it doesn't happen, it's difficult for the banks to, to kind of, again, mitigate some of their risk. What you did see is that the banks were the first ones to start to, to exit uh, some of the customers, which then created a big problem because um, they were, and it's on, on record and public record that we were actually the first bank to exit the, um, the, the, the Guptas and, and, and the associated companies, uh, quickly followed by some of the other banks, which then kicked off a, uh, a, a much broader level of awareness. But if I look back again, kind of some of the things maybe five, seven years ago, with hindsight, yeah, we could have done more. The, the, the question is, did we pass a, a reasonable person test? Uh, uh, that, that's probably the, the one I, it's difficult to answer. Um, I think the banks all fulfilled and discharged their reporting obligations as far as they aware. How much more? Uh, it, it is a fair question. Um, yes, a lot of the money did flow through the banking system. And maybe the last the comment is, it's very difficult, or not very difficult, it's more difficult to pick up bribe and corruption on the transaction. The transaction could look like a purely commercial transaction. The fact that someone is paying 500 Rand for a widget as opposed to 50 cents, you can't really see from the transaction in terms of the company's paying a supplier. So, so there's a little second layer or, or another step you have to take before you can uncover that. So, and the banks aren't able to call for some of those contracts, et cetera, and shouldn't be because that, that's not the business of a bank, but it's a little bit more obscure in terms of finding it, but um, that doesn't mean that we we shouldn't be top of our game in, in picking it up. Would it help um, if the banks were able to collaborate um, with each other more to go and deal with these issues? I, I feel sorry for the decision makers in a certain way. We're dealing with this client. We're not 100% comfortable with them, but we're kind of on our own. We can talk amongst ourselves, and there's a lot of pressure to maintain that because of the margin and the P&L that it uh, brings in. 
I always feel that there's a need for a bit more independence there where you can actually go and share information with other banks, regulators, independent third parties. I don't know what you would go and construct it as so that you're able to go and add you know, that one plus one. Yeah, we've also got the same concerns. We're seeing these types of transactions, which when we combine that with what you're seeing, there's something that's really going on here that we should be concerned about. When you're focused narrowly like that, you can't do that. I don't, is there talk about trying to work more uh, collectively as an industry? You're spot on. So, so there is so much more benefit and a, a significant increase in effectiveness that, that we can achieve if we start to collaborate. And to your point, at the moment, I'm seeing my slice of the pie, so I see the, the wedge. Um, most criminals, and you can probably put all of them in there, um, and especially the entities, they are multi-banked, and they know that the benefit of multi-banking is that they can split their business into components that is very difficult for anyone to put together. So if I have a portion of something, I can't see the bigger picture. Collaboration at the moment um, works on a couple of angles. So it's private-private, so that will be the banks amongst themselves. Um, we have just kicked off in South Africa now a, a work group that will analyze whether we have impediments to share information across the banks. And that will include ourselves, the, I, the banking industry. It will include the information regulator, the FIC, um, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone just looking at what are the impediments and therefore what do we have to change? Do we have to make a, a, an amendment to a certain act or a law to allow and provide for that? What are the safeguards? How can we do that in a way that's acceptable? So that is a... Poppy is a massive impediment. It, it, it can be, it just depends. So, so, so there, there, there are exemptions. So if you do something um, in, the, in the pursuit of fighting financial crime, then having uh, a level of privacy shouldn't be afforded to, to a person. So and I don't think Poppy is trying to, to provide, I'm, I'm not the, the lawyer, I was the, the chief operating officer, so I should be careful for, for giving a legal opinion. But um, my, my belief is that we actually can do some things and, and, and we shouldn't interpret Poppy as, as trying to provide the criminals with a, a safeguard or with, with privacy of, of the information. So that will get, be unpacked in terms of the private-private what you see globally, um, you see um, the MAS, so the Monetary Authority of Singapore, they are driving uh, from the regulator side banks to share information. They, they have gone live with that. Um, you've seen in, in, in the, the, the Dutch, in the Netherlands, they have um, got a private initiative, but it's, it's supported by the public sector where the banks will start sharing. And the UK are talking about um, the, a similar regulation being amended able enabling the banks to be able to share information and then for the banks to share data and also to mine the data in a consolidated fashion as opposed to in a wedge or a slice of that. So I think we will, we will definitely move into that space. I know that there's massive benefit from, from that in terms of being a lot more effective. So you find more, you find things you, you probably would have maybe found much later. You can find them early, so early detection, those things are all beneficial. The second aspect is the private-public sharing. So that's the sharing from the banks through to the FIC, through to law enforcement, through to National Prosecuting Authority. Um, in South Africa, we, we launched SAMNET, which is the South African Anti-Money Laundering um, Task Force, Integrated Task Force, um, where we're working together with the FIC. Um, we have target operating groups. We have um, expert working groups. That's where we unpack in a safe environment a lot of aspects that allow us to share information 
specifically on a, a topic or a, a target with the, uh, the authorities. So that has actually led to a significant improvement in the effectiveness across the end-to-end -end chain. There's more work to be done, but um, both on public-public and public-private, those are two key enablers for us to be able to stand any chance of, of being better at the game. And I think it's been recognized um, across the country and definitely across the globe. It's already um, in place uh, in, in terms of sharing their specific um, pieces of legislation, for example, in the US as well, that enables that already. So I would expect us to follow that. We are pushing hard as the as the bank. So we will do the, whatever we can to, to, to be able to be more effective. So we've got looking forward, you know, some progression then. So we've got regulators who I think deservedly recognized globally as being uh, good regulators, proactive, uh, not necessarily the fastest, but they're regulators. We'd like to see, you know, more progression, but they're backing a risk-based approach, you know, for example. We've got a collaboration starting across banks and other institutions and bars are trying to go and create frameworks for information sharing and partnering so that you can see the whole picture. So these are two great um, starting points. You're hopeful you're, it's not necessarily a benefit for banking, but you're hoping you'll see the, uh, the frameworks starting to level, same risk, same approach over time. Let's see whether I'm, I'm less convinced that we're going to see that one happening particularly quickly, but you know, we'll see. Okay. So we're off to a, a good starting point, but now we've got this huge influx of new technologies, which are starting to change the game, both for financial services and for the criminals alike. And I wanted to go through um, three of them to understand how you see these playing out over the next uh, couple of years. The first was sovereign identity. That was top of mind for me after chatting with one of your um, ex-colleagues, actually, Andy Baker, about sovereign identity. It feels like something which could be revolutionizing how people are going to be actually dealing with financial institutions. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the days of, of presenting a, um, a South Africa green ID book or currently a, a ID card, uh, those things are, are subject to a significant amount of um, of, of, of fraud or the ability for them to be to be used to and reproduce in the way that someone getting that or receiving that at a branch can quite easily be confused or conned into accepting it. So back to the here's a document, here's a piece of paper, tick the box, on we go. Um, we have to get you something that is probably more credible. The experience on the customer side is much better. Um, we, we can, I mean, the next step up from there would be um, the banks are able to ping the home affairs database, which has the unique name, surname, identity number, and um, biometrics of the, the fingerprint. And for the, the, the more recent ones, also the, the photos of um, individuals. So that is at least a step up. So um, from, a, for, from my point of view, from a quality aspect, I would much rather prefer that than someone presenting a physical document or a card. Um, and also the experience from the customer side is so much more um, rich because the customer can walk in with nothing. We're able, they can say, I'm Colin Isles. And I'll say, okay, I, I hear you, Colin Isles. Uh, stick your fingerprint down there. And I'll say, yep, I can see that you're Colin Isles. So, so it, it's, it's a finite way of being able to determine who the person is. We have to, we, we, we can't not verify a person's identity. Otherwise, we, we start off with, with something that is, 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 is impossible to control. So that, it feels, it the, feels like a really interesting one, Nick, because, you know, self-sovereign ID, I've got my app and, you know, uh, I'm onboarded by you guys. Um, that gives me a certain quality of credentials in terms of the persona, that you know, the relationship I have with Bank A. Now I go along to insurer or I go along to the, I don't know, 
get a driving license or or join a club they're able to access it if we permission to go and see yes he has you know gone through a series of you know approvals this bank has got a relationship with him we've got therefore a bit more certainty that this is the right person to go and deal with now i can go and allow that information to be shared from my app it seems to be going in a direction where you know uh, we get a one plus one is three and the environment is just a lot easier both from a removing friction but also reducing risk for multiple organizations dealing with individuals and companies uh, absolutely the, the only thing about sovereign id it's, it's kind of similar to facial recognition it's the it's the confidence level you want to attach to that so but it, it's not from a principle and a concept point of view i think uh, you can depending on, on on how it's kind of rolled out you can get to a level of confidence that i can say that is colonials because of the way that it is constructed and presented. So um, there shouldn't be, from a principal point of view, a challenge for a um, an institution to, to move through that. It will just be the quality of what degree of confidence can I put into that um, specific um, representation. The same way that, at the moment, the quality of the Department of Home Affairs is deemed to be adequate and sufficient and appropriate. We just have to get that uh, sovereign ID to, to have a a level of quality that's acceptable because then the reuse is, is just multiplied. If, if the quality is there, the person can do anything with it. And I think that's the that should be the idea. If the quality okay. level is there, then there, there will be a problem across the board. Then the next one um, I was interested in is crypto. Actually, the next two is crypto and AI. Obviously, we want to, to find out about that. But I want to do crypto first because in some ways, AI might be a shorter conversation. I'm imagining it to go like this. Are you doing a lot with AI or are you trying to do a lot with AI? Yes. Can you see massive advantages? Yes. Is everyone else? Do, it's almost like, you know, unless we get into the specifics, crypto, I'm more confused about. I can't work out if this is a net benefit uh, for the banks in terms of financial crime. It's, a, it's, it's not really helpful because it's actually benefiting the criminals. You know, you're, you're see, I don't know what, what's happening in the world of crypto, both in terms of the technology and uh, the currencies in terms of financial crime. Uh, crypto is interesting, and I, I'll revert back to um, same risk, same rules. So there, there are significantly similar risks in that, but the rules are are not uh, level at all. And I think we see this across the, the globe. There are a lot of regulators who are unhappy and who are firming up regulation and raising the bar, talking about registration. There's a discussion in South Africa around whether the crypto provider should be listed as uh, regulated by the by the FIC, um, it will probably go in that direction. The providers actually wanted to go there because if everyone plays by the same rules, then um, it's uh, it's fine. Uh, the the other comment is um, the same way a a credit card doesn't misbehave. It's the person who uses the card who misbehaves. Um, a crypto asset doesn't misbehave. It's it's how it actually is used. It is also how you are able to, to to kind of in the first instance purchase that so where did the money come from there, there are various aspects within the the broader crypto markets or environment that don't deliver the quality and if the quality isn't there at the point when it is on the way in it's very difficult for the bank to be able to lift the quality i can't lift the quality of a transaction that's been done with no controls because it's not my customer I can't see that. I don't have access to that. So sometimes the banks are left in a very difficult situation where the risk is just too significant. So what do you then do? And I can't mitigate it because, it, I mean, we have examples of fraud being committed within another account in APSA 
the money goes into a crypto exchange, goes into probably two or three currencies, off it goes, it's gone, within 20 minutes on a Sunday evening. Um, and if you unpack that, the, the, the customer at that specific um, crypto provider was onboarded, but it was with two IDs of two deceased individuals. So it's very difficult to for the banks to actually operate in an environment unless the controls are lifted. So that's the, the actual players. Now the players, for people who want to buy and sell crypto, all our customers, um, they are free to do that as long as they comply with um, the rules and the laws of the country. So there's no issue with, with customers trading or buying or selling crypto, investing in crypto. Some of the crypto providers, um, depending on the risks they pose to us, we may or may not want to, to do business with them or the, the risk profile needs to be of the right appetite for us to be able to, to accept that. Um, where will crypto go? It, it's, it's still, I mean, the technology of the blockchain, and, and many, many banks, including ourselves, are looking at, can you use that technology to actually maybe a very fun authenticate um, other aspects of, of, of your, your, your processing environment, etc. So that is sound, but where will the, the currency elements of, of the crypto discussion go? Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right. Uh, I think Morris is going to come back and join. We've got about five minutes left. And um, I want to um, take Kirsty's question, actually, in terms of AI. So perhaps I was a bit flippant saying, of course, you're going to go and do AI. I think Kirsty's she's correcting me. Right, which is good okay it's not so obvious that ai is going to be beneficial for banks potentially do you have the data sets actually out there to go and train your models if you do put the models in the place how are you going to go and remove you know the bias and actually understand whether it's working because then you don't understand what's happening in in the model so perhaps it is a little bit more complex what, what's your take on <laughs> on uh, using ai in your world mate uh, to, to make you feel better i think both you and christy are all right. I, I, absolutely, we are using it, but there, there's not a, a silver bullet in that. And, and we have to be focused and specific around how we deploy that. The deployments that we've done um, aren't necessarily models that basically just run on data sets and they, and they, and they self-learn and, and off they go. We have to provide a level of transparency and a level of what we put into that, that model is actually a, uh, a reflection or depiction of the decisions that our analysts would have made. Uh, we do significantly high quality assurance on the outputs of that. Um, what I do like about it is there is a full order trail. So every decision, you can see exactly how it was made, which is a, a thing that the regulators will require. We engage very closely with the regulators around the components where we have applied artificial intelligence. And we haven't gone, like I said, for, for unsupervised models that just run. We can, we can play around with that, but they don't form part of of the core. Once we are happy with something, it's been tested, it's been run in parallel, we've done the QA, we will bring some of that into live production and we have elements of, of um, AI sitting in live production, but it is it definitely is being done, it definitely is useful. It's a, it's a critical element of being able to be better at risk management, but to, to Christy's uh, challenge, absolutely is not something where um, I can take it off the shelf and say, now I can sit back because the the AI basically is, is running my function. Um, we, we, we won't be there for for my lifetime, work lifetime, that is. Uh, we, let's see. Let's see. You're still young. Marius. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Colin. Uh, Nick, uh, from us, from Simon, and thank you very much for spending um, your valuable time with us and our listeners today. 
Um, I hope that it was valuable to all of you. Um, for me, certainly, you know, thank you very much for the very practical approach, you know, in terms of financial crime and, and the risk management. It, it's good to see that, uh, you know, that we're going to see some good uh, logical practices coming in, into the domain and into the discipline. You know, I, I think one of our, you know, one of our passions and purposes in cyber is also to, to make a contribution to financial inclusion across the continent. You know, I mean, obviously, as we know, it's a big issue. And I, I think it's not just about financial inclusion, but it's also about how do we make it easier, cheaper and safer for our people as they get uh, taken up into, into the financial services world. So, um, and that's a key thing. And then uh, maybe just also, Colin, for, for everyone that did um, miss the, the talk on, S, on um, SSI, self-sovereign identity, Go and follow that on the link. I do think, um, as we spoke about, these things tie in together. You, you know, I mean, obviously, the identity of people is a key component of, 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 of financial inclusion and digitization of, of processes as we move forward. So, uh, yeah, thank you, gentlemen, for your help. Colin, good to see you again. Uh, 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 we'll, we'll see you again in January. So follow us, see what that's going to be all about. I don't think we finalized that topic yet, Colin. No, not um, yet. But um, if anyone's got a topic, you know, obviously email back. You can email to the mailer that you'll have received. You can put it on the chat now before we kill the call or, you know, um, or look up uh, Cybrian or myself on the Internet. Colin R is easy to find. Lots of ways to message and just tell us what you'd like to hear about. So I'm fascinated about, you know, the future and how technology is changing it in financial services and industries in general. So um, we've got the right partner here with Cybrian who are operating at the forefront of this space. So if you want it to be discussed, we'll organize it. Just let us know what the topic should be. Yeah, great. And then um, just finally from the Cyber family to all of you, have a good festive season. Stay safe, you know, take a good break and uh, yeah, and uh, happy holidays. And we'll see you in the new year. See you in the new year. Nick, thank you very much again. Marius, thank you. And Bye. everyone that's called in, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode on financial crime, then why not check out my website where you'll find more interviews, case studies and articles on leadership, innovation and disruption. Just search for my name, Colin Owls, and it should pop up. And finally, a big thanks to this episode's sponsor, Cybrin. If you want to learn more about their digital transformation offerings, then check out cybrin.com. This session wouldn't happen without our sponsors, so Cybrin, thank you very much. Until next time, everyone, stay safe. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.